Our first message this afternoon is from Mr. Reg Noland. It is entitled, Recipe for a Good Leader. Thank you, Ron. I had to abandon the original message I had prepared today, the times before the end, because it had grown too big, too unwieldy, too depressing to deliver, almost as depressing as the news. Now, since my retirement, I have been watching a lot of informational educational television, including PBS, news programming, the History Channel, the Discovery Channel, National Geographic, Science Channel, Game Show Network, etc. most of which has been very political. Um, it seems as though we don't have anyone, we don't have anyone worthy of leading our nation. So of the two dozen candidates that are vying for President of the United States, I'd really like the option that I discussed with Carolyn a couple of weeks or so ago, the none of the above option, the none of the above option. And uh, so I turned my thinking to the positive side instead. I said to myself, self, if you could custom build a leader according to scripture, what would he, she look like? Today, with your assent, I would like to piece together a recipe, a recipe for the ideal leader. Also, for convenience sake, I will use the masculine pronouns throughout, but fully acknowledge the likelihood of a female leader. In fact, Isaiah 9.3, I think, says we're going to be led by a leader, a female leader shortly. Um, also, for convenience sake, I will use masculine pronouns throughout. Um, the only time, in fact, that uh, a female leader has arisen in biblical history was places such as Deborah, when the men were not capable of doing the job, basically. When the men refused to do the job that they were supposed to do or incapable of doing, unwilling to do the job required. Note that this is a recipe for the person, not an assertion of policy. But there was a time when the children of Israel were without any leader at all other than God. <coughs> it was a true theocracy. Uh, when God ruled his people directly without the need of an intermediary king. However, our ancestors objected to God's rule, and he consented to letting them to be ruled by a king. Uh, not only, uh, w but not without a warning of what the consequences would be of their rejection. So, we have a warning placed in the mouth of Samuel. Prior to, uh, it will go like this. Prior to Jeroboam's rebellion and the split that split the United Kingdom of Israel into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom, um, Israel in the north and Judah in the south, of course, the United Kingdom didn't, did not always have a king. Instead, God wanted to be their sole ruler, but they rejected God and wanted to be like the other nations all around them, so they asked Samuel to anoint a king over them, and God has assented to it, saying, Samuel, they have not rejected you, they have rejected me. All right, so let's turn to now 1 Samuel 8. This is a long passage, but it's necessary to fill in the history behind it. Uh, 1 Samuel 8, verses 1 through 18. Now it came to pass when Samuel was old, that, and he had made his sons judges over Israel. The name of the firstborn was Joel, and the name of the second, Abijah. And they were judges in Beersheba. And, but his uh, sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel 
gathered together and, and came to Samuel at Ramah and said unto him, Look, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now, make us a king to judge us like all, like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge over. So Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Heed the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, they have, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. According to all the works which they have done, since the day that I brought them up out of Egypt, even this day, with which they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. Now, therefore, heed their voice. However, you shall solemnly forewarn them and show them that the behavior of the king who reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who asked for a king. And he said, this will be the behavior of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them uh, for his own chariots. By the way, chariots is a war machine. Uh, and to be his horsemen. And some will run before his chariots. He will uh, appoint captains over his thousands and captains over his fifties. will set some to plow his ground and reap his harvest. Some to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariot. He will take your daughters to be perfumers, cooks, and bakers. He, but he will take the best of your fields, your vineyards, your olive uh, groves, and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your grain and your vintage and will give it to his officers and servants. And he will take your male servants and your female servants, your finest young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take a tenth of your sheep and you will be his servants. And you will cry out in that day because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. And the Lord will not hear you in that day. Basically, you brought it on yourself. In short, the king would steal from them to amass great personal wealth, would nationalize the uh, country's assets to put them under his power and control, and in order to maintain his power, he would draft thousands of their children into, the service, into service as soldiers, as ministers, as servants, and as workers. And that's exactly what happened. And this is not to say that this, is, mm, this would be true of any human who took that kind of office. The, hum the greedy human heart almost always triumphs over the good goodwill of the people. So, what makes up the qualities of a good leader? That's what we want to try to do today. We'll go to scriptural references and put it together piece by piece as I go through. Paul gives us a good place to start when he describes the qualifications of a bishop or an elder. By the way, the word bishop or elder uh, really translate as a supervisor, overseer, or leader. That's not what it translates to. The passage is in 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 7. This is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop, an overseer, he desires a good work. A bishop, then, must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, Able to teach, not just by a bad example. Uh, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous. One who rules his own house well, having his children in submission uh, with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how can he take care of the church of God? 
Likewise, if we're talking about, say, a nation or a state or something like this, if he doesn't know how to rule his own house, how can he possibly rule the state? You know? um, not a novice. That means he's mature. Okay, no babe. Uh, lest he be puffed up with pride and he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Moreover, he must have good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Okay, can we all agree that these qualifications for an elder would not be appropriate also for a leader? Yes? Any objection? Okay. Uh, godly character. I would also hope that we could agree that a good leader would have godly character. So, what constitutes godly character? Again, let us look to scripture for some more indicators. First and foremost, God is love. And so any godly leader must possess and show a genuine love for his constituency, even to the point of self-sacrifice, especially for those who cannot fend for themselves, such as the widows, the orphans, the homeless, the downtrodden, etc. Scripture references for evidence of this. First John 4, 8 says, first, he who does not know, uh, he, does, he who does not love does not know God, for God is love. So the first characteristic of godly character must be love. Uh, Mark 12, 31. Uh, what's happened here is that uh, Jesus' critics have come forward to him and asked him to name the greatest commandment. And after a few moments of thought, he says, mm, serve the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and that is the greatest commandment of all. And, and then in Mark 12, 31, he says, and the second, like it, is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, for there is no other commandment greater than these. John 15, 13 says, greater love has this, <coughs> uh, greater love has no one than this and to lay down one's life for his friends. So the idea of self-sacrifice becomes a critical idea for uh, a godly character. Psalm 51.1. It's not only that we uh, have love in the general agape sense, but we also need to have love in the sense of kindness, genuine kindness to one another. All right, Psalm 51.1 says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, brought out my transgressions. Okay. Hence, a godly leader must, uh, must love the people and want the best for him. He should not be selfish and working toward personal gain, which, by the way, violates the emoluments clause in the U.S. Constitution, but be self-sacrificing for greater good of the nation. Personally, I am quite suspicious of the billionaires who are running the times, there are several of them, um, willing to take a pay cut down to oh, only $400,000 a year, that's the salary for the President of the United States, just to be President. Why would you take a pay cut down to 400000 just to be President? Huh, makes you wonder. Okay, second, um, next characteristic. He's compassionate, empathetic, and patient. A good leader must show compassion for the plight of his constituency. He must understand at an emotional level the hardships of his people. Hence, the leader should arise 
out of the midst of the people as one of them who has experienced similar trials uh, or trials similar to those of his constituency, not someone born with a silver spoon in his mouth. Okay. Uh, James 5.11. Indeed, we count um, them blessed who endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. So compassion and mercy, two characteristics of God. Uh, continuing in that same line, Psalms 86.15 says, But you, O Lord, are a God full of compassion and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in mercy and truth. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Aren't these qualities that we'd like in a leader? Law-abiding. To have godly character, one must be law-abiding, reliable, constant. The law exists to provide structure for a nation or a state. Uh, therefore, everyone must be subject to the law, and no one, including the leader, can be above the law. Uh, Proverbs 24, uh, verses 21 and 22. My son, fear the Lord and the king. Do not associate with those given to change, for their calamity uh, will rise suddenly. And who knows the ruin that those two can bring together. Malachi 3, 6. For I am the Lord, I do not change. Therefore, you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. Because, and, and finally, Romans 8, 7, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it, uh, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither can it be. Okay, we need a leader who is constant, who does not change. He can be relied upon. Okay, we can know what to expect from day to day, hour to hour, along the way. If not, if you don't want a leader who is not above the law, then what you want is a dictator. Okay. Next is truthful. God cannot lie. That's indicated first of us in Paul's salutation to Timothy. And one, Titus, sorry, Titus in Titus 1-2. But it's spelled out in more detail in Hebrews 6, 17-18. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immut immu immutability of his counsel. Immutability means it does not change. Mutable means it changes. Mercurial is another word for uh, it changes rapidly. So immutability of his counsel confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled to, for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. Okay, if lying is beneath God, how much more so should it be beneath the godly leader? In our recent Bible study in Zechariah, one of his dreams visions was that of a flying scroll signifying a law above all that singled out thieves and liars for a special curse. How much greater the curse must be if the lies emerge from the lips of the leader. After all, we know that deceit originates from the devil, who is the father of lies. Let's look at the scriptures to back that up. 
First, the passage in Zechariah that we have recently studied. Zechariah 5, verses 3 and 4. Then he said unto me, This is the curse that goes forth, goes out over the face of the whole earth. Every thief shall be expelled according to this side of the scroll, and every perjurer, that means liar, um, shall be expelled according to that side of it. I will send out the curse, says the Lord of hosts. It shall enter the house of the thief and the, and the house of the one who swears falsely by my name. It shall remain in the midst of the house and consume it with his timber and stone. Proverbs 17, 7 says, Excellent speech is not becoming to a fool, much less lying lips to a prince. And John 8, 44 and 45, You are of your father the devil, and the desires of your, of your father do you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks, he speaks from his own resources for he is a liar and the father of it. But, but because I tell you truth, you do not believe me. Honesty is such a critical quality in a leader uh, for if we cannot believe what he's saying, uh, is the truth, then how can we trust him to lead us, to speak for us? Indeed, honesty is such an important trait for godliness that God included it as the ninth of the Ten Commandments. Okay, our commission. Do you guys remember uh, the, underneath the waters of baptism? We come up, the very first thing that happened is we were read a passage from Second Peter. That's the qualities that, that we should have. Okay? Uh, I, I'll bet most of us do remember that commission. It was a commission that's given to us immediately following our baptism. I think that these would be good character, uh, great characteristics for a good leader. You can find it in 2 Peter uh, 1, uh, verses 3 through 8. Okay? You've heard this before. Maybe it'll bring back some memories. Okay? As his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, uh, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance, godliness, to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful uh, in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Does anyone object to these qualities in a good leader? Okay. Humble is the next quality I've picked up here. Shouldn't a leader be humble? Consider Jesus. Jesus was the incarnate form of the ruler of the universe. He was a role model. Born in a stable to a working class family, he arose from the masses and was always humble, willing to eat with outcasts, wash the feet of former fishermen and tax collectors, willing to submit himself to authority when he could have brought down a legions of angels to liberate him. Humility stands in sharp contrast to arrogance and pride in defiance of God's correction. For this I turn to Isaiah 9, verses 8 through 16. And the Lord sent a word against Jacob, 
and it has fallen on Israel. Notice the difference there. He sent the word uh, against Jacob, the physical descendants of uh, Jacob, but it has also fallen upon Israel, the spiritual descendants as well. All the people will know, Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, who say in pride and arrogance of heart, um, the bricks have broken down, but we will rebuild with hewn stone. The sycamores are cut down, but we will replace them with cedars. Do you realize what he's doing here? There's been an act of God against these people, and instead of taking it as correction, they say, they are in defiance. Well, if the bricks are down, we'll build with hewn stone. If the sycamores are down, we'll just build with cedars. We'll make it better. We'll make it better. Not, not taking into account the whole purpose that it was correction. Therefore, the Lord shall set up uh, the adversaries of resin against him and spur his enemies on, the Syrians before the Philistines behind, um, and they shall devour Israel with an open mouth. For all his anger has not turned away, but his hand is, out, is stretched out still. For the people do not turn to him who strikes them, nor, nor do they seek the Lord of hosts. Therefore, the Lord will cut off the head and tail from Israel, palm branch and bulrush in one day. The elder and the honorable, he is the head. The prophet who teaches lies, he is the tail. For the leaders of this people cause them to err, and those who are led by them are destroyed. Do we really want a leader so proud that he cannot admit a mistake and cannot take correction? Proverbs 15.33 says, The fear of the Lord is the instruction of wisdom, and before honor is humility. Let's go to the next quality, a quality I really want to have in any leader, and that is for him to be wise and knowledgeable and justifiably confident. Surely we would want a leader who is at least mentally stable and competent, preferably one who is very knowledgeable with the wisdom to apply that knowledge with prudence, being as wise as serpent and as gentle as dove. Although he had problem in his later life, uh, when his lust drew him away from God, Solomon was without a doubt the world, one of the world's greatest leaders because of the wisdom uh, that he received from God. Let's look at that rece reception. This is in 2 Chronicles 1, 7 through 12. On that night, God appeared to Solomon and he said, Ask, what shall I give you? And Solomon said to God, you have shown great mercy to David, my father, and have made me a king in his place. Now, Lord God, let your promise to David, my father, be established, for you have made me king over people like the dust of the earth in multitude. Now give me wisdom and knowledge that I may go out and come in before this people. Who can, who can, for who can judge this great people of yours? Then God said to Solomon, Because this was in your heart, and you have not asked for riches or wealth or honor or life of your enemy, nor have you asked for a long life, but have asked wisdom and knowledge for yourself that you may judge my people over whom I have made you king. Wisdom and knowledge are thereby granted to you, and I will give you riches and wealth and honor such as none of the kings have had before, have, have had who were before you, nor shall any have after you after you have the like. Okay. Of course, Solomon um, 
had to have some bit of wisdom here to begin with, right? In order to be wise enough, smart enough to ask for wisdom in the first place, don't you think? He had to have some. First uh, Kings 4, 29 through 31 says, And God gave Solomon wisdom and exceedingly great understanding and largeness of heart like the sand on the seashore. Thus Solomon's wisdom excelled the wisdom of all the men of the east and of all the wisdom uh, of Egypt, for he was wiser than all men. It names a few after that. Wisdom is so important, particularly for a leader, as it is mentioned in 215 verses in Scripture. Knowledge is not far behind with 169 verses. Here is Solomon's injunction to pursue wisdom. It's in Proverbs 4, verses 5 to 13. Get wisdom. Get understanding. Do not forget. Do not turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her, for she will preserve you. Love her, and she will keep you. Wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom. And in all you're getting, get understanding. Exalt her, and she will promote you. She will bring you honor when you embrace her. She will place on your head an ornament of grace. A crown of glory she will show to deliver to you. Hear my son and receive my sayings. And the years of your life will be many. Uh, I have t uh, taught you in the way of wisdom. I have led you in the right path. When you walk, your steps will not be hindered. When you run, you will not stumble. Take firm hold of instruction. Do not let go. Keep her, for she is your life. So one of the keys of wisdom is the willingness to admit when one is wrong to take correction, to amend your ways. Otherwise, Scripture says he's so stupid he needs a sign. Okay, let's look at that. Proverbs 12, 1. Whoever loves instruction loves knowledge, but he who hates corruption is stupid. Scripture is not... Uh, does around here. With knowledge and wisdom comes justifiable confidence, founded upon verifiable facts and logically derived conclusions or inspired intuition. If one has surety in facts, then he can proceed with confidence and courage, two qualities of a great leader. Uh, Proverbs 8, 12 through 17 says, I, wisdom, dwell with prudence, and I find out knowledge and discretion. Um, the fear of the Lord, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil, Pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverse mouth I hate. Counsel, that means taking advice. Counsel is mine and sound wisdom. I am understanding. I have strength. By me, kings reign and rulers decree justice. By me, princes rule and nobles and all the judges of the earth. I love those who love me and to those who seek me diligently. And those who seek me diligently will find me. Okay, wisdom has several traveling companions. In order to, yeah. in order to obtain wisdom, one must uh, develop certain good habits, including self-discipline or self-control, diligence, perseverance, the same habits that we have pledged ourselves to upon arising out of the waters of baptism. Okay, I'm running short of time, so I'm gonna speed up, I'm gonna delete a few things here. Um, there are other qualities. Once upon a time, kings could ascend to the throne at a very young age, even preteen, and be just be guided by a regent until they reached adulthood. Today, we prefer that our leaders assume office only after they become an adult. 
Hence, leaders should be mature. Wouldn't you agree? Leaders should be mature, not selfish or temperamental. Slow to anger. Decisive and deliberate, with, but with discernment and good judgment. They should be brave, courageous, not afraid to take risks, but prudent in counting the costs. They should be faithful, virtuous, without lust, envy, or greed. He should have a history of behavior that would make him a role model for young people. He should have a strong sense of reverence, showing appropriate honor and respect to institutions and persons who have sacrificed. His speeches should be uplifting and inspiring whenever possible, providing a beacon of hope during an otherwise dark times ahead. Question now. I've gone through all of these and shown you where they come from in the scripture. Do you object to any of these in a good reader? Probably not, for they are uh, all either overtly stated in Scripture or strongly implied. Despite our differences, I bet that we aren't that far apart on the character of an ideal leader. Unfortunately, I don't find any politicians that have even half of these traits. I'm still looking for that none of the above option on the ballot. Okay? So, is the situation hopeless? Is the situation hopeless? Nah. Look around you. Look around you. What do you see? See all these people sitting around you? They're in training to be kings and priests in the kingdom of God. People with the character that I just described. Now, we are not ready to assume our posts yet. We've got to wait a while yet. We await the coronation return of our King Jesus Christ and our transformation into spirit beings when we will have the ability to clean up and run this world properly. Until then, I would hope that uh, all of our half-baked leaders would keep a, plague of the, a plaque of the uh, first verse of Reinhold Niebuhr's serenity prayer handy on their death and meditate it meditate upon it before making any decisions that could bring about the destruction of the earth. Does everyone know the serenity prayer? It goes like this. God, grant me the serenity to accept the, change, the things that I cannot change. The courage to change the things that I can. And most importantly, the wisdom to know the difference. 